Pod is a ministry of Grace Church Greenwich. For more resources to help you get to know God better through his word, including bite-sized theology and answers to big questions, do check out www.greenwich.church. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to Grace Pod, and we've reached Mark chapter 13, where Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple and the end of the world. And it's a famously um, controversial, well not controversial, famously difficult chapter to understand. I think probably just because we're not familiar with the language of apocalyptic, which the Bible uses a lot when it's talking about the future. So it comes in the book of Daniel, comes in um, the book of Revelation, and there's a little bit of it here. And once we tune into the unfamiliar language, um, I think that the, the central message of the chapter is is going to be pretty straightforward. Yeah, and perhaps it's also uh, a happy hunting ground for people who want to predict the coming of second coming of Jesus. It becomes used in weird ways by unscrupulous people. So one of the things we're going to see is Jesus actually helping us see what isn't a sign that the end is about to come and what is a sign so that we don't get um, distracted by um, silliness. And, it, you know, it's, it's obviously silly because at the end of the chapter, Jesus says concerning that day or that hour, I think referring to the final end of the world, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. So if um, the incarnate Jesus doesn't know the date, then somebody on the Internet definitely, definitely doesn't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's not about knowing when, but it is about being ready. You could summarise it. Um, now, the reason that this this trickiness in understanding it is because Jesus is talking about two events together, or at least switching between the two. So it begins with they're in the temple, and one of the disciples says, "Look, Jesus, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings! You know, here we are. We got the privilege of attending one of the wonders of the world. It's an amazing place." And Jesus replies, "Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another." That will not be thrown down. And um, just a little aside, if you've seen in Jerusalem the Wailing Wall, I never could understand this because I thought, I thought Jesus said that no stones would remain on top of each other, but there is this still well, this wall there. And the answer is um, that isn't part of the temple. So the Wailing Wall is just the wall that holds up the, the, temple, the, the, mount. the temple mount on which the temple was built. But the temple itself, no stone remains. Jesus was right. So he's talking about the destruction of the temple, which took place in AD 70, when after a, a long siege, the Roman armies um, d- destroyed it and destroyed much of the city. And um, that's why, if, I mean, if you look across the skyline of Jerusalem today, the most prominent building is a big mosque called the, the Dome of the Rock, a big golden dome. And that is on exactly the site where the um, temple would have been when Jesus was there. So the temple destroyed on the one hand, and then the end of the world, the final judgment day, on the other hand. And he he jumps back and forth between the two. And the controversy comes because theologians aren't exactly sure, or at least debate, take different views on which bits of it are about the destruction of the temple and which bits of it are about the end of the world. Um, but it is about both. And in in a sense, it doesn't really matter too much because the whole point is that the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 is the beginning of the judgment on the whole world. And um, the two events go together. I mean, they're not together in time because one was 2000 years ago, but they are together theologically. It's the beginning of the, the whole judgment to come. Yeah. 
Yeah. And there's a lovely um, pastoral heart of Jesus we see here. So he is preparing his disciples for what will be a very tricky episode for them coming up, which is recorded for us in the book of Acts. And he tells them about all kinds of things that are going to happen, uh, a worldwide famine, there's going to be persecution, you're going to be called before um, uh, councils and beaten and beheaded and so on. Um, and you can imagine the disciples in the book of Acts in that era just thinking, oh, this is exactly on course what Jesus prepared us for. Um, we don't have to worry that things have gone off, off course. Um, wonderfully, this is things exactly as Jesus they said they would be. Let me read that paragraph. Be on your guard. They will deliver you over to councils. That verb, by the way, paradidomai, it's the same word that Jesus used of himself in the third prediction of his death. I'll be delivered over to the Gentiles. And now here, those who take up their cross to follow him, you will be delivered over to synagogues. It really is walking in the, the footsteps of, of our Lord. Um, You'll stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. The Which, of course, is exactly what happens there before the Sanhedrin. And Paul goes... Um, um, before appeals to the emperor, they really do stand in the absolute centres of power, speaking for Jesus. The gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. When they bring you to trial, deliver you over. Do not be anxious beforehand about what you're to say, but whatever is given to you in the hour is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Again, that happens in Acts when the Spirit enables them to speak with boldness and they're filled with it. I mean, it, it, as you say, it's, it, it's exactly what's about to happen. And then even more chillingly, brother will deliver brother to death, father his child, children will raise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So this is the, the message, you've got to keep going and I'm warning you how difficult it will be so that you hold on until the final judgment day. Yeah, so Jesus kind of gives a load of examples of unreliable indicators that the temple is about to fall uh, don't be alarmed by them see that no one leads you astray and then he gives us what is going to be the real indicator in verse 14 onwards and he kind of puts it in code um, do you want to tell us what the code is so jesus says when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be let the reader understand let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So the reader, I suppose that's us, is meant to understand something extra by Jesus' words. Now, where would you find hidden meanings in the Bible? People have tried all sorts of ways, haven't they? Like um, the Bible code where you sort of count every 10th letter. And you know, it's not that kind of code. It's a know your Bible code. And if you know the Old Testament, you recognise this phrase comes from the book of Daniel where twice Daniel refers to the abomination that makes desolate, the abomination of desolation. Now, a little quick um, history lesson recap. So Daniel spoke of this as something terrible that would happen in the temple, which was a signal that the city was going to fall and be destroyed. And um, it actually happened. So before the time of Jesus, in 167 BC, a guy called um, Ariochus Epiphanes IV um, Seleucid king besieged Jerusalem, came to destroy Jerusalem, and he desecrated the temple by offering a sacrifice of a pig. Obviously, pigs are unclean for Jews 
on the altar and dedicated the sacrifice to Zeus, the Roman god. So it was an, it was an abomination and it made the temple desolate. Yes, yeah, so those first hearers or readers of um, Mark 13, when they hear this phrase, abomination of desolation, they're thinking of Antiochus and the sort of um, uh, defiling of a temple and they're thinking, oh, I'm, I know what's going on here. It's the same sort of thing that happens back in those days. Exactly. And the desecration of the temple is the cue that you've got to flee the city because it happens before the final destruction of the, of the temple. So what we're looking for, to try and find out exactly what Jesus is referring to, I guess we look back in history and say it happened before Jesus at the time of the Maccabean revolt, but it must have happened again in the 60s AD. We need something that was in the temple that was so awful that Christians, knowing Jesus' words, could pick up on the hint and run. And of course, if you the thing about a siege is if you leave it too late to, to escape, then you can't escape. They seal up the city and you die inside. So this was an early warning cue to Christians to run from Jerusalem before the siege really locked down. And we're speculating, but we, we think we there's a good guess about what it might be. Do you want to say? So a couple of years before the destruction of the temple, um, some zealots took control and... Um, they consecrated their own high priest and they provoked a public outcry and there was fighting in the temple courts. And um, there's uh, a non-Christian historian, um, Eusebius, who describes uh, that during that revolt, the Christians took that as the trigger that we need to get out of here and they fled to the mountains of Pella and they were saved. So wonderfully, um, if this is the right thing, it seems to be, um, this Jesus's pastoral intent here is that um, his own people get out of the, Jerusalem before the Romans sack it and they, they picked up on the clue and they, they did get to safety. Now, we might think, OK, this is always just a history lesson then because obviously it's a really big deal if you lived in Jerusalem in the 19... Sorry, in the 1960s. <laughs> sorry, in the zero 60s. Um, it was a really big thing because, you know, the temple was destroyed, the city was destroyed, many, many people died. It was a huge massacre Josephus writes about it, just an awful thing. When Jesus says, you know, that there's such tribulation as has not been seen from the beginning of the world until now and never will be, I think, you know, that sounds like an exaggeration until you read what actually happened. You think, well, Jesus is right, this was a terrible thing. But what what does it matter to me? Because this was so long ago, this was a war, you know, the Jewish war 2,000 years ago. Um, tell us about how this is the beginning of the judgment that we will face. You had an argument about God pressing pause. Yeah, so when it says um, in verse 19, in those days there'll be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. It does sound like so extreme. And then it says, and if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. So that he's... Within two verses, he's saying this is the biggest thing that will ever happen and it will, I'll begin it and press pause uh, for the sake of the elect. And um, so theologically, at least, there is a, a, a tight connection between the destruction of the temple in AD 70 and um, which begins the, the judgment of the whole world. And then the Lord seems to press pause on it. We get a, a chapter which we're in today, a chapter of people um, being added to the church and then there'll be the completion. Um, and the, un- this... the unpausing. The unpausing. So, so currently the pause button is pressed 
ever since AD 70 until whatever date is the end of the world. And we live just on the, on the pause button. And, and if you're wondering if we're reading too much into it, which um, I don't think we are, that Jesus makes the um, same point again with a parable in, in a moment where he's going to tell a story about a fig tree. And he says one thing tells you that the next thing is just around the corner. So it's, it, this is not the same image of the fig tree as we've already had. So Jesus previously used a fig tree to curse it, wither it and to predict the end of the temple. Now the fig tree is used slightly differently, which is um, leaves come first just before the summer. So if you're trying to tell the seasons, I mean, it's difficult in London, isn't it? Because some parts of London, there is no vegetation and you can't tell from the concrete what season it is. But if you're in a bit of London next... Daffodils, yeah. It's the equivalent of the daffodil. Once you see daffodils, you know it's spring. Once you see leaves on a fig tree, you know it's summer. And Jesus says, once you see the temple being destroyed, you know that the judgment has started on the whole world and that pause has been pressed and that the next thing is unpause um let's just talk about the this paragraph that people find most tricky in those days after that tribulation the sun will be darkened the moon will not give its light the stars will be falling from heaven the powers in the heavens will be shaken and they'll see the son of man coming in clouds with great power and glory now um, in the past, people used to think this is clearly about the end of the world because, you know, it involves the movement of the stars and the sun. It involves the Son of Man coming. Um, and then some theologians have pointed out, OK, fair enough, but here's here's a couple of things to think about. Number one, the, the, the language of stars falling and the sun darkened and the moon not giving its light, it may not mean literally the movement of the sun and the stars, but rather it's a prophetic image, it's an apocalyptic image to speak about um, regime change, about upheaval, because it was used in Isaiah chapter 13 to describe the fall of the king of Babylon. And Babylon fell you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, but without the stars actually physically moving. It was, as it were, like a darkening of the sun. And if you think, oh, you're just explaining away literal prediction as metaphor... I think even in the, in the book of Acts, when Paul is so when Peter is quoting from Joel, he quotes a similar prophecy about the sun being darkened and the moon turned to blood, and the sun did go dark when Jesus died, but the moon didn't change and the stars didn't move. But it's a way of speaking cosmically about the huge significance of the things that are happening. So maybe the stars don't actually shift in their gravitational orbits. Well, they don't have gravitational orbits, do they? Because they're stars, but the the planets around them changing their gravitational orbits. Apologies to the astronomers amongst you. No actual movement of the Milky Way, but a way of speaking about the upheaval, which is huge. That that's one argument. The other argument is when you see the Son of Man coming in clouds. If you look at the prophecy of Daniel chapter seven, the coming of Jesus is actually a not a coming from heaven to earth, but a coming from earth to heaven. It's his enthronement. He comes with the clouds to, to be led to the Ancient of Days and to sit on the throne. So um, people like Tom Wright and R.T. France and, and others have pointed out all of this language is, doesn't have to be about the end of the world. It could just be about the fall of Jerusalem, the enthronement of Jesus, the, um, the, the upheaval um, on earth that is sort of matched in language by an upheaval in heaven. Um, so what do we what do we reckon for that? Is this about eighty seventy? Is it about Jesus 
coming back. Well, one of the things that pushes me towards it being about the Lord's return at the end of the age um, is the way... And, and me, by the way. Yeah. We're on the same page, but yeah. <laughs> we are. Um, is the way earlier in Mark's Gospel, do you remember at the end of chapter 8, verse 38, Jesus said, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes, same language, in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Um, and we were persuaded then that he's talking about um, the vindication uh, or otherwise at the end of the age. And it seems that, that there's such a paralleling here, the Son of Man, the coming, the clouds, the glory, the angels um, here in chapter 13, that it's a first reader of Mark would have, I think, seen that parallel and assumed there was a connection. And then the transfiguration, which is the preview of that into Peter, Peter talks about that being a sign of the, the second coming of Jesus, the, the end of the world. Yeah. And some of the other arguments uh, also are that um, why would the Son of Man receive dominion at AD 70, according to this alternative reading, rather than, as the rest of the New Testament teaches, at his resurrection? So it's just mm-hmm. a, a strange glitch if you read it that way. Um, and there's other arguments to do with the parallel in Matthew thirteen forty one and and so on, so that it's not knocked down, but I think there's enough to push us in that direction. That even though arguably the imagery is open to interpretation in more than one way, it really is probably talking about the end of the age. If people are interested in the dig deeper into the Gospels book. We get into quite a lot of detail about these sort of arguments back and forth. If people wanted extra on on that, and I think I still think the same as we thought when we wrote that. Um, but the reason you've got to make some of it AD 70 is because Jesus says this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And obviously that generation, you know, the, the people Jesus was talking to have now died and the end of the world hasn't come. But I think Jesus' point is the temple is going to fall within your lifetime. There's a very near horizon. And that is the beginning of the thing that isn't in their lifetime, which is the end of the world. Yeah. So let you know. Let's let's think of the benefit of this. He's talking about two things at the same time, or back and forth between the two. Um, I think the point of it is, well, the point of it for us is, Jesus has been right, proved right about the specifics of his future prediction. Although lots of people talk about the end of the world and they're wrong. Famously, Harold Camping. Do you remember that guy um, in the states who <laughs> predict? I mean, it's it got enormous publicity. Basically, he said, I, I must warn everyone that the world is, end of the world is coming. And lots of well-meaning Christians then donated enormous amounts of money <laughs> really? to his fund to warn everybody. And then, of course, it, the end of the world didn't come. So there's lots of Harold Campings through history. But Jesus made a prediction about the future and he was proved exactly right. In AD 70, the, the Romans did come and besiege the city. It did fall. It was a terrible thing. And so I suppose for us, the message is, he was right about the first bit. Don't doubt him about the second bit, about his prediction of the end of the world. Yeah. And we get told some specifics as well. So if, if so far the message of the chapter has been the temple will be destroyed, 1 to 23, and therefore Jesus' return is the next thing on the calendar, 24 to 31. The, the end of the chapter, 32 to 37, says let's be awake when it happens. And um, he, Jesus gives um, some teaching, firstly, being awake doesn't mean predicting the moment because concerning that hour, no one knows. 
but it does mean keeping awake. What do you think Jesus means when he says keep awake? So um, Jesus talks about being given work to do by the master who is going to come back. And I guess it's like that modern phrase of don't be found sleeping on the job. It's not like literally don't ever go to sleep, but don't slack off the work that the master's given you to do. Don't act in such a way as you're not ready to meet the master when he surprises you and knocks on the door and says, oh, hi, I'm back. How, how are you getting on? Oh, oh, uh, um, um, um. And then sort of rushing to hide the fact that we've been... This, this always reminds me of the teacher at school who left. Uh, I'm just popping to the staff room for some time and there would be all different strategies of trying to make sure you're not caught out by their return. There'd be the person who's you know, stations the guard and tries to listen for the footsteps and that may or may not work because the teacher sometimes, you know... Put slippers on. Put slippers on. Um, but actually the best way that the Jesus teaching here is the best way to be ready is just to be doing your work when they come back. Um, <laughs> it's, it's not very glamorous. Um, and, and that's what the, the call of the chapter is. It says it's definitely going to happen. Jesus has been proven right once. And the key outbox for us is look busy. Yeah. And look busy, despite the fact people hate you, you'll be hauled before councils, you'll, you'll be delivered over to death, keep, but keep being ready. And having in mind the return of Jesus is very important for people who are persecuted, isn't it? To think this will end one day and I'll get the well done from, from the master. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us again for Grace Pod. And uh, please, uh, if it's been a help, do share it. And join us again next time. Thank you for listening to Grace Pod. For more information about Grace Church Greenwich, visit www.greenwich.church.